0: Logic and making an argument is pretty key uh, to doing the politics. And uh, knowing how to actually present an argument that's a a true argument, not a false argument, which Mm -hmm. we will soon probably know a little bit more what that actually means, is really important to be doing proper apologetics that is actually searching for truth. Hmm. If you're searching for truth, you also want your arguments to be truthful. And Peter has done a lot of very interesting work, bo- both with, I mean, he's a philosopher and he knows a lot about logic and argument in general, but he's also done work on presenting or teaching uh, young uh, students or pupils in school, in secular schools, about how to present truthful arguments and how to understand and being able to analyze arguments so that they can find out if an argument is true or not and also what kind of implications that search for truth has Um, when you're talking about some of the big questions about worldview and faith and ethics for example and today um, you're going to present or show us uh, one of the ways that you've done that in schools and maybe you can uh, say just a little bit more about uh, how that has worked out, like mm. where you've been, sure. how many years you've done that and stuff like that. And also we yeah. can say a few more words about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we're very happy to have you.
1: Marvelous. It's great to be here. I always look forward to my uh, teaching day on the study tour. Uh, I always find the students from uh, Gimlacullen, or (laughs) Yimlacullen, to give it its soft G pronunciation for the locals, uh, which I was delighted, if I was able to be um, uh, in Gimlacullen for about a uh, a few days uh, earlier this year, and I was delighted to find out the actual translation, the meaning of Gimlacullen, which turns out to uh, roughly translate to Moose Hill. (laughs) (laughs) Moose Mound College. I think that's a great uh, great name. So uh, I studied uh, philosophy at university, and I carried on to three universities, and then I worked as a student pastor in a church uh, for three years before moving down to Southampton, where I now live on the the south coast, uh, where there was a Christian charity that I worked for for the last 15 years. Uh, uh, They recently uh, closed down and reopened under a new sort of branding and everything. But um, I don't need to go into the ins and outs of that. Uh, But for the last 15 years with this charity, uh, one of the main things that I've done with them is developing and presenting and training other presenters on uh, conferences for what we call sixth form students. So this is pre-university... Uh, 16, 17-year-old students, uh, usually uh, at the end of the secondary school system, although sometimes people go to a separate college that's just for those uh, two years, but we've been usually working in the the schools, which are the state schools, uh, secular schools, um, uh, public schools, private schools, uh, of all kinds of schools, all kinds of abilities. But presenting material that opens up people's thinking about the big issues in life, particularly uh, about God and the relevance of God uh, to uh, life and issues. We, we mentioned uh, about ethics. One of the conferences is about um, ethics and free will and how that fits with your kind of understanding of what a human being is and how that has to be consistent with your understanding of the, the nature of the world at large. Uh, and we push them on the, on the dilemma, really, of is it consistent to say, I don't think there's anything supernatural. I'm, I'm a naturalist or a materialist in my worldview. So to be consistent with that, surely you have to say a person is nothing more than a particular physical mechanism of some kind with a particular evolutionary history or whatever. That there's no soul to, to a person separate from their brain. Basically, your mind is your brain full stop. Is it consistent to hold that understanding of reality and of what a person is and to say that a murderer shouldn't have killed that person and is morally responsible and blameworthy for killing them and deserving of being punished for doing something they shouldn't have done and we give them that dilemma to wrestle with and like all our conferences they work up then to the the kids themselves working in groups to then make presentations at the end of the conference they make a series of presentations which are graded according to a mark scheme and there's a box of chocolates to bribe them to try and do well and so on uh, to present their view of the thing, yes
0: Could I comment there? Did you notice what he was doing it, uh, in the conference? He's not—he's not kind he's not of making them Christians. He's looking at—he's challenging to think about the worldview. Mm. He's not saying it's wrong. He's just asking: Is it consistent? Can you have that worldview and be moral uh, and yeah. think about morality? But it's, it's actually communication, focusing on. Pushing the questions back to the world, world views. So it's world views, communication, very close to what, what we really want yeah.
1: to do here. So what I often yeah. describe it is I, I don't go to these pupils and tell them what to think or argue that you know they should agree with me. Rather, I go in and I tell them how to think about an issue and give them the information and the platform on which to start thinking about it and to express... Their view. And yes, you know, sometimes you will have groups who will come up and say, well, of, of, of course there's no God, and express their atheistic viewpoint and argue that um, maybe they might say, no, it's not consistent to hold people morally responsible. Actually, we don't think people do have free will. Um, and we've just got to face that fact and live with it. We might find that uncomfortable, but that's the truth. They might do that. But sometimes those groups faced with that, di- that dilemma matter of consistency for the first time we have had groups of students who sort of say things like well I came into the conference thinking I was a materialist but I now see that that isn't consistent with the fact that I do want to hold people morally responsible and I'm wrestling with this I've got to go and rethink everything because you know there's a number of different ways of being consistent with this but the one thing I now say I can't say is I can't go along thinking, I'll just hold my materialist worldview, and I'll just blame people for doing things when they annoy me, and that's all fine. <laughs> they actually see that there's a, there's a problem there to, to start wrestling with. And to actually get people um, talking and thinking about the big issues, to, to start getting people being perhaps a little uncomfortable with their non-Christian worldview, their non-Christian spirituality... As a way of hopefully opening up down the line the conversation to moving towards a Christian spirituality. But you don't have to do the whole thing in one, as it were. Um, You can't just, very rarely can you uh, take someone uh, who is in a a non-Christian worldview. And on the basis of two and a half hours conference time with them. Move them to saying, Yes, you know, I'll I'll answer the altar call and become a uh, Christian. Can I get baptized now? You know, that's sort of Philip meeting the Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible who was reading the prophets and says, That doesn't happen very often. (laughs) Uh, People, I'm told, statistically, from starting to think about Christianity seriously, if they're not a Christian, don't have that, that uh, background particularly, to actually dedicating themselves to Jesus, often takes two, three years of, of process. Um, so, um, you know, in sort of apologetical, evangelistic kind of situations, I don't think we should feel a pressure to kind of close the deal here and now. Uh, We should be thinking in terms of, how can I help this person move on a step or two in their thinking? Um, And and often, with many people, that is just to get them thinking. As my boss says, if you want to get people thinking about God, first of all, you've got to get them thinking (laughs) about things. And that's at least one thing that these school conferences do. I'm going to show you the, the ethics material today but rather material called, that's a good argument. Yeah?
0: Just uh, are, you, uh, are you recording?
1: I, I am, yes. So I, I can't give you the, the PowerPoints, um, but I've given you handouts, and I'll give you more handouts this afternoon, and I, can, I will give you and send through to you the, the recordings. I've got a little MP3 player on. Um, so yes, uh, it's good to warn so yeah, if, if if you don't want your voice on the recording talk to me when the recorder's off, but it, it's good to have you don't have to sort of notate everything because you know that the MP3 file will be coming your way, so um, yeah And feel free to just raise your
0: hand if there are words you don't understand it, or if you want me also to uh, yeah. sum
1: up in the region. I may, I may even put it on my podcast channel that... Uh, some people subscribe to. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So this conference teaches that the basics of, of logic, of how arguments should work and how they can go wrong. And what it works up to when I do it with, with school kids is getting them, again, working in groups to make a presentation on their view of the existence of God. And we, we sketch out the four possible positions that one can take and I'll introduce those in a moment, and we get them uh, into groups to then argue for their view, but they have to do it using the tools of of reasoning that we've taught them, and there's, again, there's a mark scheme, and, you know, sometimes I end up giving the box of chocolates to a group of agnostics, or atheists, or whatever, um, because they make the best presentation. (laughs) That's that's fine. Actually, that shows I'm being fair. (laughs) You know, um, That in itself can undermine um, people's prior ideas, their preconceptions about Christians. Um, The so-called new atheists, and a lot of people in culture have this idea that Christian faith, to have faith, means believing something without having any reason for believing it. Or indeed believing something that you know isn't true. Because then you have to work really hard to have faith in something that you know is not true. And that's why uh, you know, you, there's great merit attached uh, in uh, religious belief systems to having faith. You've just got to have faith. you know. Um, this, of course, is a completely unbiblical, uh, non-mainstream, non-orthodox concept of faith. Um, but culture at large has this idea. And so the, the very fact that, oh, we've got a conference this morning organised by the religious studies department, what are we going to be doing, you know, cloning in pictures of baby Jesus all morning or something, and there'll be some Christian at the front quoting Bible verses and is trying to convert us and things. And then they discover that, oh, it's, it's a Christian who's studied philosophy, who's teaching me how to think and articulate my own views better than I could before. Uh, who was it in the educational system that actually taught me how an argument should work? It was that it was that Christian dude. Like, what's with that? How does that work? You know. Um, so just by being there, turning up and saying, you know, hi, I'm a Christian, I studied philosophy, I'm here to—that's you know, all I need to say. I, I don't need to then push an agenda to have actually, for a lot of people. Just turned a a few lights on and and, and burst a few sort of preconceptions about Christianity, the nature of faith, um, etc. So I start with uh, a a clip from some British comedians called uh, Mitchell and Webb. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, But a clip from one of their BBC shows from a few years ago that's um, sending up one of those late night discussion shows... And they're having a chat in this instance about, is there a God? So there's a a host of this discussion, one chap called Raymond Terrific, and he has three guests. And um, they end up, through this sketch, uh, articulating a number of different viewpoints on the existence of God. But what I usually ask the the students to do is to particularly pay attention and, and ask themselves the question, is this a good argument about God? Or not. If this is not a good argument about God, why? Why is this or is this not a good argument about God? Let's uh, watch this sketch. Hopefully, my loud speaker equipment is loud enough to to fill the room. Now, actually, when you start unpacking that, you, you, you see the sense of why there are those four different guests. With They had to represent four different positions you could take, uh, even the there is no yes or no answer position, which he takes the mick out at the end there. But, um, clearly, I'm showing this as an example of this is not a good argument about God, but the question is, why? What could... What was going wrong here? What could they do better in terms of actually having a sensible discussion, a good argument about what they think about God? Asking why. Yes, asking why. They, they, they share their opinions. Well, I think this. What do you think? I think that. You have a vote. I think this. But then it Why? In in a sense, you could say, that's not a good argument about God, because there wasn't any argument about God. There there was no argument there. (laughs) But it was good that they all got to share their their opinion. But that's, you know, ground zero. (laughs) We need to advance a little bit from there. Um... Anything else that grabbed your attention about the discussion that you you thought could be improved on, or or that you thought was was good? He kept interrupting. Mm -hmm. He kept interrupting them. He wanted to move very quickly. Let's get this sorted. Um, It's not the sort of issue that we're going to sort that quickly (laughs) after several thousand years of arguing about it. Uh, Just get it sorted now. Um, Probably not. Hmm. Some values. Values attached to argumentation as much as logic does. Indeed, you only use logic. um, in the pursuit of things that you think are valuable Um, Friedrich Nietzsche the German philosopher famously asked um, why pay attention to truth why should I care about what's true and what's false you know, why bother learning logic, well only if you want to care about what's true but why why do that Um, can you give me an Argument proving that I should care about truth. <laughs> um, well, if I don't care, then I'm not going to pay attention to the argument that you give me. <laughs> it's a moral is- issue. You kind of, it's one of those you either see it or you don't kind of things, isn't it? Um, So morals attach to to values. We were talking about truth. There are the three traditional values that the medieval philosophers talked about, of the true, the good, and even more broadly speaking, the beautiful. And traditionally, these have all three been conceived of as objective realities, things that don't depend upon us, but things that are what they are, independently of us and what we happen to think about them Um, so they're not things that we create we don't create the truth that the earth orbits the sun rather than vice versa uh, any more than we create the truth that torturing small children just for fun is wrong or that rainbows are beautiful we discover these (laughs) things uh, and have to deal with them, and have to have a, a, a view of reality that that fits with this reality, that, that pushes back uh, at us if we get it wrong. Um, so, we should disagree with one another. Disagreeing with one another actually is a good thing, because it helps us to pursue the truth in community, and that's a good thing. But we should do it without being disagreeable, without getting Angry. We can have an argument that's not about being angry with one another, but it's about helping one another to pursue the truth. And Raymond Triffitt there in, in the sketch, is getting rather kind of, let's get this sorted. Come on, everybody. What's you holding me up? I've said balalaika. Let's blah, 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 blah. Getting rather kind of angry and hot under the collar, as we would say. A second value. And uh, this kind of links to what we do this afternoon a bit as well. Ideas are not created equal. Now, when we think of the, the idea that people are created equal, or that people have equal rights to hold their opinions, to express and argue for their opinions in the, in the public square and so on, we can hold all of that, but none of that means that ideas are equal. That the, the kind of the key mistake that postmodernism makes, one of the key mistakes that postmodernism makes, is to transfer the idea of equality from people to ideas and to say that ideas are all equal, all equally. True, all, all equally false. Really, we need to check out the categories of, of true and false, and good and bad and ugly and beautiful. Um, those are purely subjective things, and hey, we've all got a right to have our own subjective opinion of these things, so we can differ. But we're not really disagreeing. We're not disagreeing about a fact of the matter. We're just having a difference of, you know... Uh, what flavour is ice cream? Is your favourite flavour of ice cream? Chocolate. Chocolate. Anyone else have a different favourite flavour of ice cream? No. <laughs> 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 oh!
0: <laughs> really?
1: Uh, not even strawberry? Ah, oh, strawberry. Uh, if I said... Strawberry ice cream is my favourite flavour of ice cream, and you said, No, chocolate is my favourite flavour of ice cream, you're wrong. If you say, Hang on, what do you mean I'm wrong? <laughs> I've just told you what my favourite flavour is. You know, are you saying I'm lying about. <laughs> well, I be, uh, assuming I'm sincere, you, you can't say you're wrong about that, because I'm, I'm not claiming that strawberry ice cream is the best. Ice cream. See, there's a difference between those those claims, and and the reducing all ideas to the same level gets rid of being able to make claims about what is the case, kind of out there, independently of what I happen to like or not like. You know, it makes I, I can say things like, um, taking an, an aesthetic ex- example. Um, Light opera. I don't particularly like light opera. I've been known to go to the occasional Gilbert and Sullivan, but that's about it. Um, I don't particularly like that genre of music. I, I really like prog rock, progressive rock music. Um, now, you may not like that, you know, we have different subjective opinions of the things. But uh, I think I can say, although I don't really like light opera, I can see that there's a lot of musical value. I can see that people who do like it are kind of within their rights to appreciate that artistic form. I'm prepared to acknowledge that there is beauty in light operatic music. It's just that it's not my particular cup of tea as well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, it seems to me that, that that's a perfectly meaningful, sensible kind of thing to say. But if all we have is subjective opinion and we can't, there is no actual making of truth claims about reality, then that would, that would be nonsense to say something like I just said. Because all, we, all I could say is, well, this is my subjective opinion, ability to appreciate or, or, or not. Um, so there are some values that attach to, to logic and to the process of arguing uh, and some sort of prior assumptions that we're, well, we want to pursue what's true and actually there is a difference between statements that are true and statements that are false about things it doesn't all depend on us um, that's why it's, we can get things wrong and actually some of those things matter and that's why it's important to put in some invest some energy in trying to get things right because they matter. If you didn't hold any of those beliefs, you wouldn't really bother uh, with argument, you wouldn't, certainly wouldn't bother with education. Um, I think a lot of school disciplinary issues actually arise from a worldview level of pupils rather than just being a matter of. Bad behaviour. You can see certain worldview beliefs or attitudes or uh, moral beliefs that you could have that would completely undermine any interest in education. And we live in a. This is a picture of Times Square uh, in in New York, sort of um, an icon of the way that our culture is suffused um, with. Information bombarding us. Um, Interesting recent statistic I saw uh, measured um, American teenagers and the amount of time per day that they spent doing different activities in life. And the, the number one activity, the thing that they spent the most hours per day doing, was sleeping. Okay, they're teenagers, you need your sleep. Good. Number two. In terms of the amount of time spent doing it was looking at a screen. Uh, it might be your iPhone screen or your computer screen or a cinema screen or whatever. But looking at a screen, usually that means giving some third party an opportunity to influence what you think is true and false and good and bad and ugly and beautiful through words, images, music advertising etc and uh, even when it comes to issues like is there a God this is uh, famous we had uh, the British Humanist Society this is Richard Dawkins here but and a member of the British Humanist Society and they paid for these posters up on uh, buses in London that said there's probably no God now stop worrying and enjoy your life oh there's a lot you could analyse out of that but you know (laughs) I ask people, do you just have your mind made up on an issue like, are you going to believe in God, like Raymond Terrific wanted his mind made up? Um, Let's get this sorted. Um, You tell me the answer and I'll believe it. First person he meets. Oh, that didn't work. What did he do then when he found out that there was disagreement? Said to like, well, let's get a majority opinion. <laughs> you know, you have a casting vote, I'll just believe whatever the majority of people around me happen to believe. Is that a good way to make your mind up on such an issue? Should you make, have your mind made up on a, such an issue by who happens to have the biggest advertising budget the Church of England or the British Humanist Society? You know, who, who's got the better advertising executives on their side? Mm, probably not actually you need to have a more sort of objective think through this kind of issue uh, for yourself and try and encourage them to actually think no this is something I need to take ownership of because this is an important issue um, this is, there are lots of issues I don't want to just end up following the, the crowd believing whatever my family believes just because that's where I happen to be born etc um it's good to apply this to advertising not good advertising let's let's look at a an advert or two uh, and bear in mind this question about is is what's going on here in an advert a good argument or not um hint usually not <laughs> but it's fascinating to see the sort of tricks of the trade that advertisers will use that the the the, the Tricks that they will use to try and get you to part with their money. Because all adverts have the one basic message, which is this. Please, I want your money. I want your money. Please give it to me. Yeah. But most advertisers think that that might put you off <laughs> if they just said that. <laughs> so they think, oh, let's employ some very clever people and spend thousands of dollars, or thousands of pounds or whatever, coming up with an advertising campaign that will get people to give us their money. We'll <laughs> um, persuade them to give us their money but hey we don't really need to actually use a good argument to do that do we? Because there's lots of ways to persuade people to do things and to think things that aren't a good reason for doing it or believing it and actually an, an advert that gave you a good reason to buy a product would probably be pretty dull and boring <laughs> so um, you probably forget it so we want to influence you when you're walking down the supermarket aisle it's like what packet of cereal am I going to buy ooh you know then we want something in the back of your mind going Cocoa Pops, Cocoa Pops <laughs> Mutabix or whatever you know So uh, here's an advert for hair colouring. It it tells a a brilliant little drama. It's like a little soap opera in like two minutes. Um, So watch this. Think to yourself, what are they they actually communicating to you? What are they doing to try and persuade you? And is it a good argument? Let me give you just a, a minute or two to chat with the folks around you about what that advert communicated to you, how they were trying to persuade you to part with your money. Okay, dokie. Okay. Uh, so, any ref- reflections from your conversation? What was being communicated to you? How were they persuading you? Was it a good argument? No. No? Not a good argument? No, I agree. Um, <laughs> again. What, was, there, was there sort of an argument... Going on or not? <laughs> Whether or not it was a good one, was there? sort of? A if you have red
0: hair, you can wear red
1: shoes. Fact. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: it's only a fun fact, though. Um, yeah. If you wear red hair, if you have red hair, you can buy nice red shoes. And 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 then what? What What's the point of buying nice red shoes? You feel better. You feel better. Yeah, yeah. Why do you need to feel better? Your shit. Yeah. <laughs> you you worm. You you ordinary pedestrian person looking into my my shoe shop. My boutique. It's probably not a shoe, it's probably a boutique. Because uh, <laughs> it has very posh, expensive shoes, and you looking at the window thinking, oh, those are nice shoes, and then looking at me and then thinking, oh dear, oh no, I'm not really worthy of nice shoes, am I? She doesn't think I'm worthy.
0: <gasps> oh, hang on.
1: <laughs> I coloured my hair this week. I can buy shoes. <laughs> And then I'm taller than everybody else that the casting manager has picked for the final scene so that I stand out <laughs> <laughs> from the crowd. Yes, I can, I can stand out from the crowd by buying this mass-produced, mass-marketed product.
0: <laughs>
1: it's like the scene in Monty Python's The Life of Brian where there's the whole crowd of people um, saying, in unison... We're all individuals. And then someone from the back pipes up and says, I'm not. <laughs> Hang on. That doesn't really, <laughs> doesn't really work. Yeah. So they tell you this little drama, this little soap opera that's meant to meant to catch hold of your emotions. And on the one hand you could say, Oh, isn't it really nice of Claire What a lovely company. Trying to make us feel better about ourselves. They want me to be a more confident woman. Well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with being a confident woman, is there? You know, that's a good thing. How lovely of Clairol to help me achieve my goals in life. But of course, on the reverse of that, the way in which they've done it also gives me the message that if I'm not colouring my hair with Clairol hair colour, I'm a worm. <laughs> I'm not worthy. I you know. I can become worth I'm uh, worthwhile as a person by spending money in a particular way. <laughs> and that's how they're trying to persuade me, you know. Well not me, because I don't think the advert's aimed at me, particularly. Uh, <laughs> but persuade the viewer to part with their cash. So um Actually, you could say, I think, I think there's something immoral about that, <laughs> that rhetoric, that mere rhetoric that they were using there. It certainly wasn't a good... I mean, if they had done some peer-reviewed psychological studies, <laughs> one group of people who had used Clairol hair colouring, one group of people who had used Boots' own brand hair colouring, and a control group of people who had used no hair colouring and did a before and after psychometric test on their levels of contentment and happiness in life and showed that those who used you know, Clairol, you, know, you could you could imagine a psychological study that could potentially give you a good argument, <laughs> but that's not what they've done. And, and had they done that, that would have been a pretty boring advert, but... That's how advertising works, isn't it? I'm going to skip over one just to keep in a matter of times. Do show you're working. This is a... You know, he said in that sketch at the beginning, your answer can't be as long as the question, don't show you're working. And of course the whole... The point of the conference, as I do it with the kids, is to get them to see the need of actually going... You need to go through the workings and understand the mechanism, the workings of an argument and to be able to take them apart and put them back together and to present them and to consider them uh, as we help one another pursue truth. So a lot of what we've done so far has shown the importance... Of argumentation and the the fact that there is a difference between simply asserting something, making a statement, making a truth claim. dyeing your hair will make you a more confident woman, you know. um, And actually arguing for something. Those are two different things. Uh, Argument is not just a statement, but there's more than one statement in an argument. You have to have a set of statements, more than one statement, that are linked together. There, there has to be a relationship between the statements such that the statements in an argument lead you to having some confidence in the, the outcome of the argument, in the conclusion, in what's being argued for, as the American Christian philosopher William Lane Craig puts it, an argument is a set of statements, that's truth claims, that serve as premises leading to a conclusion. So an argument has a number of different statements, and one of those statements in an argument is called the conclusion. That's the thing being argued for. And the other statements in an argument are the premises of of the argument. And if the premises are there and they tie up in the right way, they lead you through to the conclusion. Uh, and then you have an argument. Now all of this goes back to an uh, ancient Greek chap called Aristotle, who wrote, uh, as far as we know, the first textbook on logic in about 350 BC. So you can, you can now mark that on your Old Testament timeline and see that it's actually not very far back on your Old Testament timeline, um, when Aristotle was uh, knocking around in uh, ancient Greece and Athens and so on. He was um, at one stage he was the tutor for Alexander the Great, who went on to conquer most of the known world. Whether that is an endorsement for Aristotle as a tutor or not, uh, we will <laughs> leave to one side. Here is a typical um, kind of logic 101 kind of example that aristotle used actually people often attribute this to aristotle but i've never seen a reference to where this actually would come from Um, but this is uh, a good summary of what aristotle did he's kind of the first person in a sense to think not only is it good to think about the world but hey we could think about thinking (gasps) Uh, uh, you know that's like not only inventing the torch but saying, hey, if I get a mirror and shine this torchlight on the torch, that'll help me make a better torch. Because now I can see what I'm doing. Let's think about thinking. Radical man. Uh, so he said, well, how do we think about thinking? Well, let's do it like this let's come up with an argument that's obviously a good argument. And then work out what could go wrong to stop it being a good argument and then we have a kind of set of rules for telling the difference between a good argument and a bad argument that would be really useful that would be cool so here is a typical example Socrates, it was another ancient Greek chap Socrates is a human Socrates is a mortal let's say that's a premise, a truth claim this is not difficult. <laughs> but when you combine, when you add in another premise, and let's put in the premise, all humans die, or everything that's mortal dies. Now we have two premises from which we can draw a conclusion, from which we can see that this conclusion follows as night follows day. Indeed, more, even more reliably than as night follows day. Because, I mean, hey, it could be the second coming this afternoon. <laughs> it could be. Um, but this conclusion follows logically, by, of necessity. You can see in this kind of deductive argument, as it's called, if, if it's true that Socrates is a human... And it's also true that all humans, everything that fits the category of being human, will die. Then it must be true. It must be true that, therefore, Socrates will die. Yeah? Yeah? What's uh,
0: another word for premise?
1: Premise. premise. So that, that's just a, a truth claim in an argument that's not the conclusion. Yeah, so a statement. So the, the conclusion is a statement, you know, Socrates will die. Um, but it's a statement that's supported by the other statements in an argument. So conclusion means what you're arguing for, and the other statements often are called premises. It's just a technical term for them. But yeah. But hopefully you can see this. this is just sort of intuitively. Clear and obvious that yes, I mean obviously, no one is going to disagree with the fact that if Socrates is a human and all humans die, then Socrates is going to die. Okay, uh, and it doesn't get that much more complicated learning logic. Really, uh, I will need to teach you um, what is it three other rules. That, that's that's smaller than the set of instructions for operating a toaster. I reckon, you know, what, what is it? Get some bread, put the bread in the slot, adjust the dial, depress, wait. You know, uh, that's already more complicated than logic. Okay? Um, the thing with logic is that it's a skill that's easy to learn, but then it takes practice to get used to applying it. In keeping it in mind, to become adept at using it takes time. Um, it's a bit like learning to play notes on a piano. It's not very difficult. You know, you have the the musical stave, and there are little blobs on different lines. And if there's a blob there on that line, it means depress that key here. Okay, oh, I think I can get that. How many of how those blobs do I have to learn? Oh, there are, there are well, basically eight, and and then the little black ones in between. So I, I I learn the correspondence between the blobs and the notes. Oh, I can do that pretty quickly. I can, hey I can play piano. <laughs> hey, oh, no, that's a bit quick, you see, because <laughs> it's one thing to know the cor- you know know the rules, but to then go and play a piece of Ratman and off or something, it's much harder. See, but. At least learning the rules is simple, so don't fret. Uh, another technical term: syllogism. Uh, the English word logic comes from the same Greek root, logia. Or I think in New Testament Greek terms, logos. In in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, etc. Uh, it's the same term uh, that's buried in here and syllogism is just the Greek word that means the, kind of the shortest unit of argument that you can have and the shortest unit of argument you can have is one that has two premises and a conclusion you can see if, if, if you only have one, one statement one premise and a conclusion then you haven't argued for anything in order to argue, you have to be able to say, this is the case, and this is the case, therefore, this third thing is true. You have to at least have two premises in a and that's called a syllogism. Yeah.
0: called syllogism. So that is as say, the least the amount.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, many arguments are, are, look longer, will have lots of premises at a conclusion. But when that is the case, if it's a good argument at least, you will always be able to break it down into these little syllogistic units just like a big brick wall is made up of individual bricks this syllogism is like the brick of argumentation you put lots of bricks together you can build the Taj Mahal or Blenheim Palace or whatever Um, here's a little video with me in a high vis jacket that uh, illustrates this another way One section of track is rarely enough to get you to your destination, so a single syllogism is rarely enough to carry the whole argument you want to make. A train relies upon many sections of track, carefully laid together one after another. A train of argument relies upon a series of syllogisms, carefully connected one to another, to carry the argument from its first premise all the way through to its concluding
0: destination.
1: Of course, there's a pun here that depends upon knowing the English phrase "a train of argument," which may not translate. Um, but it's it's hilarious, uh, not particularly. But you get the idea. If you imagine a, a model train set, and you get little bits of track, a bit of corner, a bit of straight, etc., um, to have an interesting train set that you know goes anywhere, any distance, you need to link those bits of track up together carefully, so the train will. Not get derailed, and it will just move around, and whoop whoop, it'll be nice. It's the same with arguments. Once you know how to make a syllogism, what you in effect do is you carry forward the conclusion. You treat the conclusion of argument number one as the first premise in a new argument, and you kind of carry over the result, uh, like you do in uh, algebra sometimes. And if you add in a new premise then of course you can split out a new conclusion number two. And so on and so on and so on. For as as long as you need to, to kind of argue everything that you need to argue. Um, So let's extend the example that we had earlier about Socrates. Uh, If we carry forward that conclusion and then add a new premise in the same cheery ancient Greek vein, um, dead bodies are things that decompose well then we can get a new conclusion out therefore Socrates' body will decompose so not only do we now know that Socrates will die we know that his mortal remains will fall apart and so on and so on and so on for as long as you want to keep arguing stuff yeah Okay, let's do a, uh, a worked example from a film clip, a bit of an old clip, but this is uh, the Jim Carrey film Liar Liar. Has anyone seen this film, Liar Liar? In which he, he plays a lawyer uh, f- who, for reasons we needn't go into, uh, finds himself uh, magically cursed such that he can't say anything untrue for a whole day. And the film has a very cynical view of lawyers because all the humour. Of the film then comes from how is this lawyer possibly going to do his job without lying? You know, as if that's all lawyers do all day. Which of course it's not. But that's the, the viewpoint the film takes. And in this particular scene all you need to know is that he's, he's having a very bad day. But he's having to defend a client of his in court. Uh, who's a young lady who's going through a divorce proceedings. And she had married a very, very rich... Man, and because of that, when they got married, he had made her sign what's called a prenuptial agreement. You heard know, of this? It's particularly big in America when people marry in, into money. Uh, it's an additional legal contract on top of the the usual marriage contract uh, to do with how we handle the money if we get divorced, because there's a lot of it. You know, so we'll sort that out here and now. Often people use it to, to make sure that people aren't marrying them just for their money. It's like, you would love me if I was poor, wouldn't you, dear? Oh, oh yes, dear. <laughs> you know, I'll get all the money. <laughs> uh, so they, they do these sort of contracts. And in this case it said, look, uh, of course, if, if we get divorced for the normal sort of reasons, um, then we split everything 50-50. You get half the money, I get half the money. But... If you commit adultery, if you cheat on me, and it's it's proven that you've cheated on me, and I divorce you because you've cheated, then you don't get anything. I get to keep all the money. That was what the contract said. Okay. Now Jim Carrey's character is defending the lady in this divorce proceedings. She has cheated on the husband. That's already been proved. Everybody knows it. And yet he's going to argue that she should get half of the money. Even though she signed this prenup and she's, she has cheated. And he's going to successfully argue using a good argument because he can't say anything untrue at this stage in the film. So how's he going to do that? Well, if you'll see on your worksheets at the bottom here, there's a little bit. And we've started filling out the argument that he wins the court case with. And we've been so nice to you, we've even given you the first premise and the ultimate conclusion of the argument. And you'll see that it's an argument that's really made up of two syllogisms. One of which feeds into the other, of course. And it starts with the the truth claim, the assumption, that this prenuptial agreement, prenuptial agreements are only valid, only legally binding, if um, this young lady was... At least uh, was over 18 years of age when she signed the prenuptial agreement. Because if she wasn't over 18, she would have counted as a, as a minor and she wouldn't have been legally allowed to sign that agreement and make it valid. Okay, So the, that's the first premise. And he's going he's to take that premise and build an argument on it that gets him to the conclusion, therefore she gets half the assets, she gets half the money. From the divorce, but he has to do it a step at a time going through these two arguments. So I'll show you the, the clip. Um, this also has the, the, the words up on screen to make it a little easier. Um, there's a bit of a setup, but I'll just note to you when he kind of launches into, aha, here's the argument that's going to win me the case. And then together we'll fill in the missing steps of the argument. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Those lawyers don't get on. You you may have picked the subtle signs up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, help one another, use the worksheet, see if we can fill in the missing uh, bits of his argument. So I didn't jump in. Obviously, it was after the biblical quote about the truth will set you free that he launched (laughs) uh, into uh, the winning argument. Of course, remember... Since those, those are the same, the ones in green, are the same bit of information. Once you've got to here, you've got that premise and you've got the conclusion. And all you're missing is a step. And you just have to think to yourself, even if you can't remember what was said, you can think to yourself, what would have to be true in order to get me from here to this conclusion? So knowing the structure of the, of the argument starts helping you out as to what the actual content should be because you think, you think well I, I know he gets there how, how on earth would you get there so we've given you the first premise here that prenuptial agreement is only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it what do you think the second premise is going to be she oh. was not over 18 ok she was not over 18 when she signed it um I've put, she wasn't over 18. Now, it's the information that counts rather than the particular way you express it necessarily. So you could say, for example, um, yeah, if she was only 17 when she signed it, that would, that would also work. Or she wasn't over 18, you know, or you know, she was under 18. Um, those are really the same bit of information. Just like you can express, you know, that the cat is on the mat and la chate dans la main. Uh, and however, you would say the same thing in Norwegian, which I don't know. Uh, you can say the same thing in different uh, languages. So, as so long as you have something that means, but she wasn't over 18 when she signed it. Now, if we've got those two premises, if the prenuptials is only valid if she was over 18 when she signed it, but she wasn't over 18 when she signed it. Therefore, we can say
0: it's
1: not valid. It's not valid. Right. The, therefore, the prenuptial agreement is not valid. Mm-hmm. Now, we're halfway there. We are carrying forward that conclusion. We now treat that as premise number one in a second argument. We extend the argument. So, we've got the prenuptial agreement is not valid. Something else is the case. From which it would follow, therefore, she gets half the assets. What is the missing stepping stone? The missing bit of track. Yeah. Since
0: the agreement isn't valid, she should have the half of
1: the money. Uh, right, okay, so something like, in the absence of a valid prenuptial agreement, she should, she should get half the assets under standard divorce law or something like anything that kind of means that same thing so what have I got I've got uh, I've got without a valid prenuptial agreement she gets half the assets means the same thing from which you can see it follows therefore she gets half the assets yeah now I'll just say a word about this thing with the the green and carrying forward we do this in the conference to make it clear that what's going on, when you have a longer argument, that it's, made, it's always going to be made up of a number of different syllogisms, where that syllogism is two premises and a conclusion. But generally speaking, people don't write out arguments like that, even when they do on those rare occasions write out an argument, because um, it's just cumbersome. It just takes too long to bother writing out the same bit of information twice. So, most people, if they were going to put that argument, would just say um, the prenuptial agreement is only valid if she was over 18, but she wasn't over 18, and without a valid prenup, she gets half the money, therefore, she gets half the money. You see? Um, so, it would look like you had. That many premises in a conclusion, but actually you can break it down. You can say, "Ah, oh, I see what's going on here. One of these, one of these premises in this long argument, is actually a conclusion from these premises, and then is being treated as a premise in this extending bit of argument." And you have to sort of learn to spot which, in an argument, which of these bits is a sort of intermediate conclusion on your way to the ultimate conclusion of the argument Um, but in the conference we make it nice and easy and clear that oh look, here's a long argument but it's it's made up of two syllogisms that kind of overlap, linked together with one another like a daisy chain so here's why I need to tell you those three additional rules it won't take very long and then we'll have a break, and then we'll do a bit more. Um, Having two premises and a conclusion, you need to have that in order to have an argument, but it's not enough to have that in order to have a good argument. See, we started off with the difference between just asserting stuff and not having an argument, and actually having an argument. But of course there's a difference between an argument that's a good one, that works, and one that is a bad argument. We need to be able to tell the difference between those. So just having two premises and conclusion is not enough. It's necessary, but it's not enough. Let me illustrate. Here is an argument. It has two premises and a conclusion. The argument goes like this. Premise one, footballs are round. Premise two, onions are round. Conclusion, therefore footballs are onions. Now, because we know that that conclusion is wrong, we can all immediately intuitively say, hang on a minute, something has gone wrong here. And the thing that's gone wrong here is, of course, I could have said at the end, I could just as well have said, therefore, onions are footballs. Because what really follows from the premises that footballs are round and onions are round Um, there are round things in the world, and two examples of those round things are footballs and onions. <laughs> I mean, that's about it, really. But you can't... That conclusion just doesn't follow from those two premises. So there must be some, some rule, some condition of being a good argument that this argument fails to fulfil. Indeed, there are three... Such conditions. To make an argument work, you must have three solid building blocks. Thank you. First, it must be logically valid, which means that the logic must work. Second, it must have true premises. And third, it must have non ambiguous terms, which means the words the argument relies on must not have a double meaning. However, if one of these is broken, then the whole structure falls down. So you'll see there's a flowchart diagram on your handouts, (laughs) illustrating the breadsticks, or is it the other way around? (laughs) And we just have one one column of this flowchart diagram here at the moment. Luke there, my friend Luke, who's the son of Nick Pollard, who founded the charity that I work for, um, (laughs) had these three questions, three conditions that a good argument has to jump through in order to make it to the finishing line. Um, And we put them like these. Are are the premises clear, you can say, or particularly are they unambiguous? And I'll illustrate these three things in a moment to to make sure you understand what these, these mean. Does the conclusion of the argument really follow on from the premises? And are all of the premises in the argument true? It's only if you ask those questions and you can say yes three times in a row that you should put any weight on the conclusion of that argument. Because all three of those things have to go right in order for an argument to work. If any one of them goes wrong, let alone more than one, but if any one of them goes wrong, then it becomes a bad argument not to be trusted. So if a good argument is one that has these three things being obeyed, a bad argument is one where any one of those three things gets mucked up, doesn't go correctly. So let me illustrate what I mean by these. I didn't even have time to take a sip of water during that. <laughs>
0: hmm.
1: <sighs> okay. So we're going end up with the whole flowchart diagram. Each of those questions has an objective answer, a discoverable answer that doesn't depend on us, which is either yes or no, in any particular instance. Because you yourself might say to yourself, oh, I don't know what the answer to the question is. Uh, are all the premises true? I don't know. But in, in reality, in the fact of the matter is that either all of the premises are true, or they're not. All three. You see? So the fact of the matter of all of these questions is one way or the other. Although we can be personally in ignorance about the fact of the matter. Yeah? And if you say no to any of those questions, then you shouldn't trust that argument. So, examples. Ambiguity is where a bit of language has more than one meaning and you can play nasty tricks on people in logic by playing on the fact that language can mean more than one thing by making it have different meanings when it reappears in an argument so look out in an argument for terms crucial terms that reappear in different premises and and always ask yourself the question ah oh, here that term also in that premise there does it mean the same thing because as we said earlier, it's not the word that matters, it's the information. And it's got to be the same bit of information when it reappears. If you're going to be sort of following this track through to a conclusion. So here is my favourite illustration of a use of ambiguity in language in humour. From the American comic of the 1930s, Groucho Marx. That's Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers not Karl Marx of Das Kapital and Communism, but Groucho Marx with the, the cigarette and the drawn-on eyebrows, and you'll see him. Here's a quick clip from the 1931 film Monkey Business where he is pretending uh, to entertain the crowd at a, at a party with his stories of an African safari that he's never been on. Ba-dum. One morning, I shot an elephant in my pyjamas how the elephant got into my pyjamas, I'll never know. You know? there's an ambiguity. When he says, one morning I shot an elephant in my pyjamas, does he mean he was wearing his pyjamas when he shot the elephant? Well, that would be normally what we would take him to mean, but he could potentially mean one morning the elephant was wearing my pyjamas when I shot him. You see? And since that is... Much more stupid. <laughs> if you interpret the language in the more stupid way rather than the more sensible to be expected way, you get a joke. Never let it be said that philosophy can't handle humour. <coughs> <laughs> so one morning I shall lift my pajamas. Um, or another illustration. Um, premise: A plane. This, this English word here, plane, P-L-A-N-E, is a carpenter's tool. Here is an illustration of one. You, plain, flat, and smooth. A flat surface when you're doing woodwork. So you don't get splinters. Plane. First. The Boeing 747 is a plane. P-L-A-N-E. We use the English word to mean one of those things. So this English word can mean both of those things. Conclusion. Therefore, the Boeing 747 is a carpenter's tool. You see. You see. You don't find many carpenters walking around with Boeing 747s in their bags. It wouldn't really fit. Um, but I can, I can kind of play that trick by trading on the fact that the, the same term when it reappears, because the word has two different meanings, I, if I use it in two different senses, then when I come to a conclusion, I can make it mean whichever I like. And so you can't trust What's said in the conclusion, because it doesn't depend upon it. Only the conclusion only depends upon what I happen to want to interpret it as, as it were. Uh, so uh, you cannot trust it. Uh, invalid logic, and often people would other people would bundle in the notion of ambiguity under validity of logic. Um, but invalid logic really means, I think, when a conclusion of an argument just doesn't follow from the premises. So, an example. Um, if I were to argue that high-fat foods are bad for you. Okay. Okay. High-fat foods bad for you. Um, some yogurts are high in fat content. Yeah. Some yogurts are high in fat content. Therefore... All yogurt is bad for you. You see. Now, what's, what's the problem with saying that at the end?
0: Changing from
1: specific to general. Yeah. So I've, I've gone from information about some yogurt here, some yogurt is high in fat, and then I've drawn a conclusion that says all yogurt. I've just generalised massively, um, and that doesn't follow. And you can think to yourself: the way to spot this, really, is to think. Well, what what does follow? If I say high-fat foods are bad for you, and some yogurt is high in fat, therefore, some yogurt are, are bad for you. grant. So, if there's a, if you can spot a difference between what kind of should follow from the premises and what's actually said in the conclusion, then that tells you that that's a bad argument because of invalid logic, because the conclusion doesn't follow. One last thing to illustrate before we have break. Um, false premises. Of course, all the all the truth claims in the argument that aren't the conclusion and need to be true in order to support that conclusion. So if I said, um, oh, it's break time now, I'll have a coffee, I'll have a biscuit, but I'm on a diet... I'll only have a broken biscuit from the bottom of the barrel because, I mean, as you know, when you break a biscuit, that kind of breaks the seal. All the calories leak out over time. So have broken biscuits from the bottom of the the barrel. There'll be no calories in those broken biscuits, so you won't have broken your diet. That would be great. See. Now, what a wonderful world it would be if we could soundly argue like this, Um, but we can't. Um, but notice, this, this: there's no ambiguity in the language here. So, you look, uh, repeated terms. Uh, oh, broken biscuits. Broken biscuits. That reappears, that term. Does it mean the same thing? Yes, it does. It's talking about broken biscuits. Um, does this conclusion follow from the premises? Is it a logically valid argument? Yes, it is. Think of it this way. If I only ate broken biscuits, if that were true, and if it were true that broken biscuits contained no calories, then of course it would have to be true that I ate no calories. So it's logically valid. The only thing, unfortunately, that's gone wrong with it is that, well, indeed, both of the premises are not true. Because I do eat other things apart from biscuits, broken biscuits, and broken biscuits anyway, do contain calories. So let's all go and enjoy some.